analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. It is snowing heavily here in Kamloops. It's actually kind of nice to see. Uh, let's jump right into this thing. We've got an action-packed show for you. Uh, more than half of, uh, half of it's going to cover the speculation tax. Uh, the latest twist coming out yesterday, uh, basically a negative options billing for all the people in British Columbia, uh, a very small percentage of whom it will actually apply to. Uh, to uh, first up on that topic, uh, former West Kelowna Mayor and a current councillor, Doug Finlater. Doug, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much. Glad to do it. All right. Uh, you, as you know, here in Kamloops, we do not have the speculation tax. You in West Kelowna do. Uh, I remember as mayor, you took that issue uh, very forcefully to the premier, one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings, as well as a bunch of other avenues. And I believe you even launched a freedom of information uh, request to figure out the rationale behind the speculation tax. But let's start with the latest development, this negative options billing. About 1.5 people are going to get letters. Approximately 32,000 of those where the tax actually applies. But everybody's going to basically have to say, I'm not speculating before they get billed. Your, your response to this? Well, uh, I think it's 1.6, what I'm reading in the Vancouver Sun here. Uh, 1.6 million people will get these letters. That's a lot of administration. And, uh, and only 32,000 at the end will be affected. And those 32,000, of course, will be profoundly affected. Uh, it's going to be a great inconvenience for many people. I think there'll be a lot of people annoyed. Uh, it, uh, they will have to do this every year, or we, because I'm one of them, have to fill this form out. So will my wife, anyone who is on title. I know of some people who actually have their kids on title for for uh, estate transition purposes. So it must be hiring like crazy uh, to go through 1.6 million of uh, these forms. Uh, if they anticipate they get that, uh, they're going to get that. Now, I have been concerned about the return rate on the proportional representation. I uh, referendum, they did only get about 40% return. So if, uh, if the other 60% uh, ignore this uh, in in the communities that are affected, you're going to have a lot of people that get a nasty surprise in terms of a big tax bill. This, this, this has been a pretty big sideswipe to your community. In a lot of ways, among municipal governments, you've led the charge in saying, hey, uh, this is offside, this is not how we go about doing this. And I know Kelowna has been to some degree a hotspot for uh, real estate activity. I'm not sure to what degree is speculation, etc. But do you think this accomplishes the goal of addressing the primary problem of both foreign and uh, and domestic speculation well we we have very little foreign ownership in west Kelowna. Uh, we have a lot of people from Alberta who have their have purchased their retirement home, or people from Kelowna, originally from Kelowna who kept a home here, moved somewhere else, and and plan on coming back. Well, we do have people in vacation homes. So, uh, what it's done to us, though, is it's uh, scared development away. And we had the one development called Goats Peak. Uh, they just packed up. They were well along. They, they you know they were well along in the in the planning. Public hearing uh, had been. Held. Uh, they dropped. They just dropped at thousand homes not built. Now that doesn't make sense to me. If you've got a, a housing crunch that you're inducing an economy, so you have less housing supply rather than more. Because at the end of the day, the answer is really to get more housing supply out there. It's also a fact, and this is why the city got so upset, aside from the affordable housing issue, uh, the, uh, it's, it's cutting into our revenues. We've now got our, our financial plans for the, 
for the next five to ten years out there, and we're we're projecting a, a drop in growth this year, and an even bigger drop in growth next year. That means less tax base and less DCCs, which we rely on because we're an eleven-year-old city. We were in we were a rural area in the regional district. We've inherited some pretty crummy old infrastructure. And we need the DCCs. We need the revenue. They help lever grants uh, without uh, going to the pro- property taxpayer for everything. So that's why we've been very concerned uh, from a, a selfish pers- perspective as a city. Yeah, uh, I can certainly understand that. Um, as I mentioned off the top, I believe you filed a freedom of information request to try and figure out exactly yeah. sort of what rationale led the province to say that this was an economically sound way to tackle this particular problem. What was the end story there? Did you ever get anything back? Oh yeah, we got we got uh, pages and pages, sixteen big fatty emails full of nothing, uh, with redactions everywhere, uh, as they call it, where they blank it out, and then a lot of fluff in terms of correspondence and press releases and so on. There was never any rationale for this. This is what we suspected. And in a case of this negative option, billing doesn't think they, t- it, it appears that they haven't changed. They haven't thought this through. There's really been no plan all along. It was an idea that came from a university professor uh, to basically try to crash the market that uh, the Ministry of Finance adopted and her assistance. And, uh, and, and it is slowing things down in the market, but it's also slowing down construction, so we're no further ahead. Uh, finance rationale for it that uh, we could find no analysis, no modeling of the economic impact of this. Yeah. Uh, Finance Minister Carol James is playing this off as a lot of political games about how complicated it is and and saying, listen, it's only going to take a few minutes. It's not that big a deal. Uh, Ultimately, this is just the Liberals kind of making a big fuss out of nothing. Your response? No, I'm I'm certainly not an MLA or a Liberal or anything like that. I I, uh, don't have some sympathy for them, but uh, this is is affecting real people in a negative way, and uh, they just don't seem to uh, realize the uh, the full impact of this on people. The, this, of course, is to target uh, some real estate activity. I, I mean, there is an identified problem, maybe not so much uh, in scale in Kelowna as compared to, say, Metro Vancouver. Is there a better way to go about this, do you think, or is this just shouldn't happen, period? Well, we said all along, and this was the position of uh, the mayors uh, that were involved in it uh, from the greater Victoria area and uh, West Kelowna and Kelowna, that should be opt-in, opt-out. We know best the type of housing crisis we have. Uh, If they want to provide some funding to help us, that's great. We're not seeing any funding yet uh, (laughs) out of of this. Uh, But there should be opt-in, opt-out. It appears it is popular in, uh, in Vancouver, and it may be because you've got a tremendous amount of foreign investment there. And I believe Victoria went on board, and the city of Victoria itself, with the idea. And then they changed course and said they were coming up with an alternate plan, and I don't know where that wound up. The, the legislation was uh, passed, and, and now we're all stuck with it. Stuck. All right. Uh, Doug, obviously interesting times and uh, some real-world impacts in your community. Any idea next steps or no? Well, uh, maybe the Nanaimo by-election will send a message to them. That, that may be a, a hope. Uh, on my part, I don't. I don't even know anybody in Nanaimo. I don't think. Uh, and uh, Nanaimo is subject to this tax, and it and it and it is. Uh, it it well, the voting and the pro rep. Uh, the turnout. 
referendum went uh, went to, went like it did everywhere else, uh, very very strongly against the uh, proportional representation. Maybe uh, people in Nanaimo will send that message. Otherwise, I guess we'll, it'll settle in. We are looking at other revenue sources. Uh, we will have a, a tax increase uh, normal normal than what we've had in the past this year. Uh, we've done our budget and. Uh, it, and we're looking at other sources of revenue uh, to to do the job that we need to do as a uh, as a city in upgrading our infrastructure. Doug, thanks so much for uh, for taking your time and, and chatting with us this morning and sharing a little bit about the impacts in West Kelowna. It was an interesting perspective to hear from. Thanks, Shane. Bye. There we go. Doug Finlater, former mayor of West Kelowna, current councillor. Uh, we will hear from Finance Minister Carol James a little later on the show. But first, uh, the Kamloops Tory MP for this riding, Kathy McLeod's on the Trans Mountain Tour. We're going to touch base with her after this brief commercial break on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to be joined by this riding's Conservative Member of Parliament, Kathy McLeod. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? Good morning, and uh, happy to join you this morning. Yeah, I bet. So, uh, uh, rewinding, you've uh, you've been in sort of a middle of this tour of the Trans Mountain Pipeline route. You've been uh, hopscotching from community to community, getting a sense of uh, what each uh, what the people in each place have to say about it. Uh, get a bit of a sense of the lay of the land. Uh, so, where are you this morning? So, this morning I'm in Chilliwack and have a number of activities here. I'm going to finish up at the Terminus in uh, Burnaby, but of course I'm going to have to backtrack um, back to Kamloops because there's a few really important people that weren't available as I was going through, including some First Nations leadership. So uh, the end of this week I'll be talking to First Nations leadership and then also uh, in Barrier and a few other places next week. But as of Tuesday next week, the tour will have been completed. Okay. Uh, what have you heard so far as you've made your way down the pipeline route? Has there been sort of a predominant theme or, or no? I was looking for the positive stories, the stories about uh, the people that were wanting this pipeline to move forward, the concerns that they have. And I think, you know, as I look at the communities all along the pipeline route, I would say the vast majority of the mayors are saying, let's go ahead, let's get it done. They see enormous opportunity. I talked to a number of people who say they're environmentalists and they want this done. In particular, Bruce in Vailmount, if you've never seen that uh, Chinook spawning area, he has a wonderful story to tell about not only the partnership with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but how they've managed to rejuvenate the stream all along the route and essentially took some seed money of 7000 and turned it into 700000 People might not be aware, but the pipeline is already twinned through Jasper National Park, and we were able to look at um, a cross-country ski trail. They actually call it Pipeline Trail. So I think taking you know, right-of-way, what some people might have said was a bit of a scar in a beautiful park, but actually turning it into a positive where people can cross-country ski in the, the beautiful forest of Jasper. Mostly, again, as we traveled, the, the issue of trains. And the issue of trains came out in a number of ways. One, people consistently pointed out the salmon runs, trains along the uh, the river, 
um, in, in Clearwater, he said, listen, we had one tanker truck drop in to the river, and that closed the water system down in David B for a week. Can you just imagine another person that says, listen, I'm an environmentalist, but I believe oil should be transported in you know, the most safe and efficient manner possible. Yeah, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that sort of between, you know, the Edmonton or the Alberta side through the interior down to where you are probably in the in that part of the Fraser Valley is you're going to find people who are more or less, you know, pro pipeline, give or take. Uh, but I think you're going to cross the threshold pretty soon into sort of the 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 problem area, which is, um, you know, the sort of Metro Vancouver parts of, of, of that region. Are you sort of anticipating there's going to be sort of a shift in what you're hearing fairly soon as you hop down to the next communities and closer to those problem areas? So tonight um, in Cloverdale, I'll be doing a town hall, and it's a multi-purpose town hall, but it's one of these subjects is going to be pipelines, and I just want to share the perspective of rural, uh, our rural areas, our communities such as Kamloops, and again, yesterday I heard from the North Shore Business Association, the president how the whole corridor had been planned and all of a sudden 22 million in the lurch. We've seen um, area after area, the landing stations where there's piles and piles and piles of pipes that were ready to be laid. There had been work camps and of course completely abandoned. I just wanna, you know what, I don't um, for a moment believe I won't hear some negatives, but I think it's also important that people uh, in the lower mainland might hear our story also. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty fair. Um, while we're on the subject, uh, here in your home riding, uh, there is one of the spokespeople for a group of First Nations, uh, Mike Laborde of Whispering Pines First Nation, uh, has been talking to us about uh, that group's intentions to buy a 51% stake in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Just sort of curious, since we're on the topic, what you think of that idea. So I'm actually Mike Laborde, Chief Laborde is going to be one of the people I'm going to be talking to in the um, on Friday, and I think it's actually got some real merit. It's the opportunity uh, he sees for First Nations to enjoy some of the economic benefits of the land. So certainly, I'm going to be very curious to hear what he has to say and how he might see this progressing. But I think it's certainly an idea with some some good merit for sure. Is it something that could be a turning point for some of those sort of staunchly opposed because uh, there's been a lot of sort of, you know, um, siding with some First Nations or bringing up sort of First Nations issues in in sort of opposing the pipeline. But if you have a group of First Nations who come in and and buy a 51% stake and really say, hey, listen, we want this project built so much that we are going to do this, would that turn the tide of some of the sort of some of the vein of of the opposition we're hearing, you think, or no? Well, I hope it would change some people's perspective. I mean, certainly there are people who are against the pipeline, no matter who builds it. But I think, you know, the First Nations opportunities we fully realize would be an important part of this project. So, you know, we'll see how that piece plays out. I'll be, again, I know you've been chatting with Chief Borje. I'll be interested uh, because things keep uh, progressing day by day. So it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say by Friday. Um, What I'm doing is I'm doing a few little clips along the way, but I'm doing many, many more interviews. And what we're hoping to do is at the end of this uh, initiative is put a little um, video together that kind of expands, goes along the whole pipeline with some really important comments as we progress. 
Um, as we know, this whole thing has sort of uh, been held up by the courts who said, listen, uh, the Trudeau government's approval was no good because they didn't take into account sort of marine impacts on, on the coast and uh, proper consultation with First Nations people. Uh, I believe they're, uh, the federal government's trying to address both those things. Did you get a sense coming down so far in your journey and talking to First Nations that there's been a renewed attempt from the federal government to meet that consultation mandate or no? So that's a piece, again, that I need to be finding out when I have my conversations with some of the First Nations leadership. One of the things that, um, you know, certainly I was disappointed and incredibly surprised when the decision about the Northern Gateway came down, and that was under our government, it was very clear about where we had lacked in terms of our consultation. So the current government had a roadmap from that decision. They said that they were learn from that roadmap and that they were doing the process properly. But when the decision came down around Trans Mountain Pipeline, I was incredibly surprised because we had heard consistently for the last couple of years that we had not done consultation properly, but that the current government was doing consultation properly. Well, I mean, as it turns out, they didn't do... um, they didn't even follow the roadmap that had been laid out for them. So that was both a surprise and a disappointment. Certainly. Now, we had suggested that the government needed to do a few more things in response, and one of them included there was a piece of legislation in front of the House uh, from the Senate that actually declared the pipeline in the national interest, and of course the Liberals voted that piece of legislation down. It would have been an important piece of legislation, I think, just to give a signal to the courts that we really felt that this was important. So surprised that they didn't support us on that. And again, a few other areas where we thought that they could have moved that they haven't. Obviously, they have to do the renewed process around consultation and the marine piece. Yeah. Uh, final question, Kathy. I mean, this has been sort of a fire starter issue for a number of years. Do you feel that that we are sort of entering a very, um, I don't know, a crisis point, I could say? I mean, we have people in Alberta raising the separatism issue, which, frankly, I think is a bit irresponsible. But anyway, uh, there seems to be some, some, some really hard feelings over this issue. Uh, you have the economic impacts in Alberta now with the price of oil and, and the uh, differential and all that kind of stuff. Have we, have we entered sort of a crisis point in this conversation? or no? We're in a very difficult place. I think if you looked at the Angus Reid survey that came out yesterday, it certainly shows that Canadians support pipelines, but we are divided on pipelines. But Canada has always uh, had strength, and I think we need to obviously ultimately look for alternates to fossil fuels. But in the meanwhile, you know, why should oil be coming into Canada from Saudi Arabia? The U.S. is expanding, and Canada is not actually taking advantage. Talking with my colleagues from Calgary, that was part of the reason. They said, well, B.C. doesn't even care about this issue. And I said, actually, B.C. does care. There's many things B.C. cares about. So, so I think that was another purpose on this video, was this is an opportunity for all Canadians. You know, certainly B.C. does care about the issue. We, Alberta, we care. And really, most importantly, is pipelines protect fish. All right. Uh, Kathy, uh, thank you for taking some time this morning to talk to us about this and be really interested to get your sort of final synopsis once you wrap up your tour. Uh, thanks for the time. That's Kathy McLeod, the Conservative Member of Parliament for the Kamloops Thompson. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, BC's Finance Minister joins us next on Radio NL. 
News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined by this province's finance minister, Carol James. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Happy New Year and great to be back. Yeah, Happy New Year uh, New Year to you as well. Uh, okay, so there's a bit of a, a controversy brewing here, so why don't we jump into it, because uh, I know your time is, is tight this morning. Uh, the speculation tax, which has been a bit of a fire starter, and now sort of this negative options billing perspective to get people that uh, the tax applies to. So about uh, 1.5 million letters going out to catch 32,000 people. Everyone's got to fill them out and go through this process. Uh, off the top, is this the most ideal way to go about this, Carol, or no? Well, this, in fact, is very similar to what people will know when it comes to the homeowner grant. Uh, So you get your tax bill in June from the city, municipality. It includes an opportunity for you to be able to access a homeowner grant. Uh, You get a PIN number. You can do it online, or you can mail it in, or you could phone. Uh, This will be a very similar process. People will receive a letter. They'll have a PIN number. They'll be able to go online. Uh, We did a little run-through with journalists yesterday, and if you're a straightforward, which 99% of British Columbians in these areas will be. Uh, It took about four minutes to be able to put your information in, check off this as your primary residence, and get your exemptions. So I think, uh, you know, there's a little bit of politics going on here, no surprise, but uh, it's a very straightforward process. And uh, as I said, will help us start to address the issue of speculation and and empty properties and uh, the housing crisis, which is the most important reason to move ahead on this. Some of my colleagues down the legislature are saying it's going to take upwards of 20 minutes, and for couples, it's 20 minutes each, not four. Does that sound about right or no? That's if you have a very complicated exemption. If you have a straightforward exemption, which, as I pointed out, is about 99% of British Columbians, most people own one home, they live in it, it's their primary residence. So they put that information in, they check off primary residence, they don't need to go through the rest of the pages, uh, they're done. And that's, as I said, about four minutes, four minutes, 30 seconds. If you have a more complex uh, exemption that you're looking for, so for example, we've given exemptions for seniors who may have gone into long-term care and so their house is vacant by no fault of their own. A couple who's going through a divorce and they both own the house, so now they need two primary residences. Again, we're not going to penalize people for those kinds of situations. So if you have a more complex exemption, it will take a couple more minutes. But for the vast majority of people, uh, it will take a very few uh, minutes and a very familiar process uh, to be able to go through. I think the other piece, because again, as I said, there are a few games being played that's important to note, is that if you, because of extenuating circumstances, Let's say you were sick or the notice got lost um, and you receive a tax bill in June. You still have the opportunity. There is no direct tax that then comes on you. There's no penalty. You have the opportunity then to still go online or to phone into the tax department to say, this is what happened. I have an exemption because it's my primary residence and you receive the exemption. So if you are exempt, you will not pay the tax. As I look at this, you, you, as I understand it, your ministry is saying that there's roughly 32,000 people that this will apply to, uh, but yet you're, you're looking at 1.5 million letters going out. If you can accurately say there's 32,000 people that this applies to, why not go directly to those people? 
Well, it's important to get that basic information. Uh, we need to make sure that people have filled out the information that, for example, their house is rented out. That's not information that we have. Uh, and if they have a house rented out, if they own a second home and they've rented it out for six months, they get an exemption. So very similar, as I said, to other government programs. If you're applying for a benefit or if you're applying for a program, you have to go online, you have to fill out the basic information. That's what this process will do. So because it relates to, uh, as I said, people who may rent their second homes out, um, in those extenuating or, or exceptional circumstances, they have the opportunity to give us that information and to not pay the speculation tax. So you're not concerned about people who throw this away or just not get the letter and then go through this whole other rigmarole on the other side when they suddenly get a bill and go, holy smokes, what's this about? I'm not. As I said, we put the checks and balances in place. It's a very pro straightforward process where they'll have a phone number, they'll have the ability to phone or go online, fill out, oh, I forgot, I didn't get the notice, check it off, here's my exemption, and then they're done. Uh, I'm just going to use my personal circumstance here because I live in Kamloops where the speculation tax does not apply, but my wife and I own a condominium in New Westminster, which we rent out. Um, where would the letter go? And, you know, would it go to our condo down there? Would it come to us directly up here? And how would that play out for people in areas where there is no speculation tax who own second homes where there is? So if you're uh, in an area that doesn't have a speculation tax, obviously you won't get a notice. <laughs> and, uh, so you won't get anything in Kamloops, you won't get anything uh, in your home there. But you will get something sent to your primary residence or to your other residence. Vancouver residents, um, just the same way you do with your property tax notice. You get that property tax notice at that address as well. Um, you'd fill it out and, uh, and you'd be done. If the place is rented, you'll check off that it's rented for at least six months of the year and you're finished and you don't pay the speculation tax. Are you worried that this uh, or how this is being taken? I mean, I'm looking at articles in the news media this morning and they're not very kind to the process. Uh, are you worried this is breathing new life into a, into a controversy around the speculation tax that could negatively impact your candidate in Nanaimo or no? Uh, no, you know, it's no surprise to me. Uh, the B.C. Liberals haven't wanted to address the housing crisis for 16 years. We all know that. That's why we're in a crisis is because they ignored the housing issues. Um, they continue to be against addressing uh, getting speculators out of the market or putting vacant properties on the market so that people can actually rent them. Um, so, you know, they're against housing. It's no surprise to me. As I said, we're seeing a bit of politics go on. The vast majority of British Columbians are in support of the direction we're taking. They want us to deal with the housing crisis and most importantly economically we have to in this province I, I had a business owner again this week say to me we got somebody who was going to come work in our business and they took a look at the real estate page and said they just can't do it they can get a job somewhere else with a cheaper housing market so we need to address this not only for those areas but for all of british columbia's economy uh your colleague uh, mr weaver has called this a dog's breakfast uh, your response to that uh, well, Mr. Weaver was part of the discussions about how this occurred. We went through a committee stage in the spring, so both the Liberals as well as the Greens uh, had the opportunity, as they did, to ask some very good questions, uh, to put forward some ideas, uh, and to know how the process goes. So I think, again, we need to address this crisis. It's not something that can be ignored. It's not something that can be left behind. Uh, I think people expect if you own a second or a third or a fourth home uh, and you're leaving it vacant and you're benefiting from the increase in the market, Market, that you can pay a little bit more to be able to support affordable housing. The money then goes back. The money coming in on this tax goes back directly to the communities, uh, and it will provide support.
support to those communities for affordable housing. Uh, and that was one of the good ideas put forward uh, by the Green Party. So, uh, in fact, I think the, the tax provides the opportunity to address housing. All right. I know your time's tight, but uh, I don't want to want you to leave without asking how next month's budget is shaping up. Uh, how are we looking there? Are the books balanced or no? Uh, yes, the books are balanced. Uh, in fact, in the, the quarterly report that came forward just a month or so ago, uh, we showed that, in fact, we'll have a, a larger surplus than we expected, than we predicted. Um, we continue to see the economic growth in British Columbia very strong. We lead the country when it comes to employment, with the lowest unemployment rate, and we continue to see very good numbers when it comes to GDP and growth. Uh, you know, there are some things to watch. Obviously, ICBC continues to be a worry. It's something I'm paying very close attention to. So, uh, you know, I'm cautious as a finance minister when I go into the budget, uh, but I'm certainly feeling good about the direction we're taking in, in leading the country in economic growth. All right. Uh, just one final question here, and I don't know if you can answer it or not, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. Uh, is there money set aside in the budget, do you know, for a new BC Lottery Corporation headquarters in Kamloops, or is that off the table? <laughs> can't can't give any clues for what's coming in the budget. People will have to wait till February. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair game. I thought I'd ask anyway. <laughs> uh, Carol, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking leading up to the budget and after. Thank you so much. Look forward to it. That was Carol James, BC's finance minister. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk about the Generation X sandwich. More on Radio NL after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined by the portfolio manager from BMO Nesbitt Burns, James McCreeth. Good morning, James. How are you? Uh, great, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're talking about the sandwich generation. So first and foremost, what in the world is the sandwich generation? It t- typically, statistics would say that that's people between the age of 40 to 64 uh, who are currently raising kids and also have parents who come into consideration for how perhaps finances are managed in the family among the generations. Ah, I see. So uh, a bit of an emotional and financial crunch for those people, I'm sure. And I think, Shane, in many instances, not something until the crunch occurs that people put a lot of thought to. But oftentimes there's some sort of minor event or uh, regrettably some sort of crisis that occurs with elderly parents that directs increasingly more attention to this sandwich generation to their parents and assisting them uh, health-wise and financially and emotionally as they age. So uh, how concerning is this from a financial perspective? Because, you know, I look out at the world today, we're in Canada, we're carrying a lot of debt out there. Uh, there's a lot of concern about people not saving enough for retirement. Uh, you throw some of the economic ups and downs we experienced over the last decade or so. Uh, and then you throw this where it's going to not only be an emotional toll, but you're also throwing a bit of a financial curveball to a, to a certain segment of people. Um, you know, I assume that's, that's, that's concerning from sort of a financial perspective. Yeah, the, the, absolutely, Shane. And, and um, on average, for the person that provides the, the care, there's an out-of-pocket expense in the range of $6,000. And, and close to one-fifth of those people can spend anywhere between $6,000 and $24,000 supporting the needs of their parents uh, as issues arise. 
Wow, that's uh, that's that's a fair bit of change. Uh, any advice uh, from you guys on how to? Is this something people should be planning for well ahead of time? If you're kind of approaching that age, or maybe you're in that sort of age range of that forty-five to sixty-five, uh, is there anything you can kind of do to help buffer yourself uh, financially, or no? Yeah, yeah, Shane, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, planning is is the key, and if if you're well prepared in advance of the incident that brings this to your attention it better positions you to absorb what's coming at you. And some of the options are you know, just encouraging your parents to develop rainy day funds or in some capacity maybe assisting them with their finances as they age. And one of the biggest tools that can be leveraged, which is very important to do with some, some proper planning, are options around insurance, including disability and long-term care insurance, and, and just maybe involving the necessary financial professionals and legal professionals to set this all up. And particularly as people age and maybe they become incapacitated to make their own decisions, things like ensuring you have power attorney over your parents' uh, affairs is also important to consider. That's interesting. Uh, just one of the points you raised there, because you know, I, I look at this and think, okay, we're we're talking about people preparing financially themselves. But you raised an interesting point in there about working with your parents to make sure they're in the best shape as well. And, and these, Shane, become very sensitive topics for families. And uh, I think waiting until you're sprung with the surprise just makes it more difficult to navigate. And we've seen all sorts of examples. Like this, this case happens many times when you know, uh, elderly parents have an issue and they live in a locale maybe where only one of their children lives and other children they've had maybe live in other centers. So the, the, the majority of the burden is borne by the child that lives in the same locale as the parents and they bear more of the financial and emotional burden and sometimes the other kids don't have full appreciation or full empathy for, for uh, what those other family members are going through. So in advance of all that, the more consideration and planning that occurs within the family, as you know, you start to see those early warning signs of maybe issues your parents are going to have, that's very, very important to get on the table and get discussed as early as possible. It's interesting you raise that because uh, I've had an uh, increasing amount of experiences within my sort of friends and family circle of people that are very much in that position where, um, you know, other family members are over here and they're in a different place and, and they feel they need or there's a, you know, a, a desire to kind of pick up their share of the weight of, of helping mom and dad, but they find themselves from a geo, you know, their location that they're not able to do that and there's stress within the family. Uh, how do you tackle that? Is it, is it like the siblings getting together and saying, okay, you know, this is coming, should we create sort of an account among ourselves where we share the financial burden, or how would you approach that? Yeah, I, I think, Shane, obviously an, an equal splitting of the cost is, is most appropriate, uh, but that in itself can be a highly contentious issue. And so, again, it's just working through those issues and, and being honest among your siblings about you know, what the costs are and what the emotional burdens are. And, you know, maybe you don't always fully get on the same page, but, again, it's just really, really important for families to not wait for the big event to occur before they try and tackle you know, all the issues that, that can crop up with elderly parents. And I'll, I'll give you a, a great example is one thing that occurs so frequently with elderly couples is one of, one of the uh, people has a, a medical issue, and then the parents need to be split up, where oftentimes 
one one of the parents is is in the family home or where they live where they've lived in retirement and then the other one has to go into some sort of care facility and someone has to bear the burden of running or or paying for both of those locales and that can be prohibitively expensive and not something oftentimes that family talk about in advance of the event occurring so a couple of things there. I mean, if, if uh, A, how do you have that tough conversation uh, among a family unit? At what point do you uh, bring in a financial advisor or somebody into that particular scenario that's, that could be fraught with tension? Again, Shane, you, you hit it. Is If you have any sense of issue that may arise with, with uh, your siblings, and again, you know, there's always issues where siblings don't always see eye to eye or get along or live in different locales, and if you find the appropriate intermediary to lead the discussion, that perhaps can alleviate some of the tension that occurs and can be, you know, uh, an unbiased uh, second opinion who can give insight into the situation involving elderly parents. And some of the people that can provide that are financial advisors or maybe family friends that work in a profession like, like estate planning or, or wills. Uh, or anything of that nature, or you might find the odd health professional who, again, can provide some insight into examples of what they've seen families do in supporting elderly parents uh, in these situations. Yeah, interesting. Um, so let's take a hypothetical here. Let's say we have a, a family of, I don't know, let's say five and, and uh, three siblings, and they are, you know, they go through this and they, they do the responsible thing and they all see eye to eye and uh, well ahead of time they meet and, and make this plan. From a, from a money perspective, um, is there a dollar figure that you would set aside for this? I mean, I, I know that's a bit sort of pie in the sky and, and crystal ballish, but I mean, they're going to have to save something. Is there a target that they should be? okay, listen, we need to work together to set aside X amount of dollars. Any idea? Yeah, it, Shane, it becomes highly situational, number one, based on the locale uh, in which the parents live, just because the discrepancy in costs for care between, you know, maybe larger centers and smaller centers. And then the second element is just the extent of the care that the parents need. So the cost can swing wildly. And you can, I mean, I don't want to get people too too scared about this, but I've heard situations where, you know, the out-of-pocket expense for uh, elderly uh, couples or individuals can run in the neighborhood of $10,000 a month. And so, again, if, if, the, if the elderly parents themselves aren't prepared to bear that financial burden, who's responsible for it and what type of care do the offspring wish to see their parents have? And again, that can run the spectrum as well. James, uh, fascinating discussion and uh, I think sort of top of mind for, for a lot more people out there than there have probably have been in the past. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. That's James McCreeth, Portfolio Manager of BMO Nesbitt Burns. We'll be back on Radio NL, although the name of the show will change, Inside Politics with yours truly tomorrow morning right here on Radio NL. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.